Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. My guest today is Andrew Yang. Andrew is the founder of Venture for America, which is an innovative program that takes college graduates who are interested in startups and places them uh, with entrepreneurial companies in cities and, and regions that have not seen as much economic success as others, places like Detroit and Cleveland and so forth. We are fortunate at NextGen Venture Partners uh, to have a graduate of that program, Alyssa Gill, as our community manager. And I am grateful to Andrew for spending some time sharing his story at Venture for America. Andrew also happens to be a candidate for president of the United States. He's running in the Democratic primary, uh, and his key thing he is bringing to our attention is a universal basic income. Uh, which is a proposal that I think is much discussed in the startup world, has a lot of proponents in the startup world. And while I personally and uh, NextGen Venture Partners you know, would certainly never endorse any candidate, we're certainly not doing that here, um, I think Andrew is very interesting, has some smart things to say about policy, certainly has a fascinating story with Venture for America, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Andrew Yang, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Andrew, you're the founder of Venture for America. Tell us what that is. Well, Venture for America is a fellowship program for recent college, college graduates who want to become entrepreneurs. We train those graduates and then send them to work at early stage growth companies and startups in Detroit, Baltimore, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Birmingham, and other cities around the country with a goal of both training entrepreneurs and generating job growth and vitality in cities around the country. So I, I can't help but notice the parallels with the name Teach for America. And in venture, it's not uncommon that you'd say, oh, this startup is Slack, but for the enterprise or, or something along this. Is this Teach for America, but for startups? Or is it that the wrong way of thinking about it? Oh, no, that very much so. I mean, I, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I like really obvious names. And so when I thought, what's the most obvious name one could give an entrepreneurship fellowship program for recent college graduates that's looking to rebuild the country and create thousands of new jobs. I thought, why reinvent the wheel and uh, let's go with Venture for America since many college students would instinctively recognize that. And Teach for America is a huge program now. Is that the goal? I mean, do you want to have thousands of students doing this every year or is it a more of a select group? Well, it's highly select right now. This past year, we had about 2,500 applications for about 200 spots. And as you suggest, Teach for America is gargantuan. <laughs> they, they, Still very selective, count, but quite large. Yeah, I think at last count, they were bringing in something like eight to 10,000 teachers a year. And so I believe that there's a lot more work to do in, in terms of entrepreneurship around the country. But right now, we're at, I think, the right size. And I, I did step down as CEO last year, so my successor may have different plans, <laughs> which would be A-OK. -okay. And you stepped down, I think, in part because you saw some challenges with what startups are doing to our, our national landscape. Tell us about that. Well, it's not so much startups, but you're 100% right, where I spent the last six and a half years working with entrepreneurs in Detroit and Cleveland and St. Louis. And... 
I realized that the startup companies, even if they're successful, will employ dozens, maybe hundreds of recent college graduates and engineers and will not replace what has been lost in terms of the industrial concerns. And automation is about to accelerate to a point where it's going to displace millions of workers in transportation, retail, call centers, fast food, and on and on. The cities I was in for the last number of years were dealing with the aftermath of the displacement of manufacturing workers, where we've automated away about 4 million manufacturing workers since 2000. And I'll tell you that those communities have been devastated, and we're about to triple down on the exact same things in the years to come. Is it different today, or will it be different 10 years ago? I mean, we've, we've automated away agricultural jobs. We've automated away jobs with horses. Cars displace those. What's new about this story? Well, a, a lot of it's the matter of speed and depth and breadth, where if you look at what happened to the manufacturing workers, and this is some of what I dug into in my book that just came out, The War on Normal People, <laughs> aptly named So I studied economics in college, like like a lot of people. And so what you'd hope happens to displaced manufacturing workers is they move, they find new jobs, they get retrained. But in reality, when you look at the numbers, almost half of the displaced manufacturing workers in Michigan and Indiana left the workforce entirely. And of them, about 40% went on disability. The number of Americans on disability shot up over the last 15 years to a point where now there are more Americans on disability than are uh, working in construction, for example. So whatever you hope happens is not happening. And concurrently with this, there's been a surge in the suicide rates among middle-aged Americans to a point where our life expectancy has been declining as a country for the last two years. So despite any hopes about what might be a magical realignment of the workforce, It has not happened for the manufacturing workers, and it's not going to happen for the truck drivers who have an average age of 49, average education, high school or one year of college, 94% of them are men. There is no reason to think that the adjustment is going to go better for them than it has for the manufacturing workers. And I think it's important for people who read the news about the unemployment numbers to understand that that is not telling the full story and, in fact, maybe entirely masking the full story. So, <laughs> yeah, so, that stat is like government malpractice. Yeah, exa- the worst. exactly. So, so talk about what the, the, impor- the key numbers are rather than the vanity metrics. Sure. So the unemployment rate in the headlines measures how many people that are currently in the workforce are able to find jobs. And we all know that's like 4%, and it's very low. But the labor force participation rate right now is at 62.9%, which is a multi-decade low. And it started plummeting around the same time as the manufacturing workers started losing their jobs. 62.9% is around the same level as El Salvador and the Dominican Republic. And that's where we are right now. There are 95 million Americans, including almost one of five working-age men, out of the workforce that are not included in the unemployment stat. And then if you look at the underemployment rates for recent college graduates, the New York Fed measured it at 44%. That is 44% of recent college graduates are doing a job that wouldn't require a college degree under most circumstances. And these are college grads who often have debt loads uh, that average right now $38,000 or up to 1.4 trillion in educational loans. So the headline unemployment number truly is government malpractice. It's an old, bad stat. 
and we need to build in the labor force participation rate and underemployment rates to have a meaningful understanding. You've become a very big advocate of a universal basic income, partially to address all these challenges. Uh, talk about what that, what UBI for short, what that is, and what your version of the proposal is. Well, sure. So imagine if you were running an entrepreneurship organization that had helped create thousands of new jobs in cities around the country. And then you realize that your efforts were like pouring water into a bathtub that has a giant hole ripped in the bottom. And that jobs are going to be rushing out in very large measure. And what you've spent the last six, seven years working on was going to be like a wall of sand in front of an incoming tide. <laughs> like, like, imagine if that was your situation. Because that was my situation. And so then I started reading books and figuring out, like, okay, what do you do about this automation threat? My friends in Silicon Valley are totally confident that we're going to be able to automate taxi drivers and truck drivers and call center workers pretty soon. And these are some of the biggest labor categories in the country. And so the solution that people kept coming to was universal basic income. And what pushed me over the edge was a meeting I had with a guy named Andy Stern, who used to run the largest labor union in the country, the SEIU. And he wrote a book called Raising the Floor and said, as the this enormous labor leader, the future of labor is no labor. We are screwed and we need to move to universal basic income, which is a policy where every adult or every citizen gets a certain amount of money free and clear from the government, no questions asked, doesn't matter if you're working, doesn't matter how much you make. And the plan that Andy proposed, which I have adopted as the central pillar of my presidential campaign, is the freedom dividend of $1,000 per American adult per month free and clear. So it's $12,000 a year. And that would be enough to elevate all American adults to about the poverty level throughout the United States. So it is increasingly a concern among entrepreneurs, people who work on machine learning or artificial intelligence, people who work in robotics, that we are causing job displacement and job loss. I think it's uh, certainly true among venture capitalists. I think at least half the companies that we've invested in are efficiency improvers of one kind or another, which, which yes. probably means um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jo job losses if the company is successful uh, at some point along the line. And I, th and I think there's a growing, a growing concern in that world that we're, we're doing uh, some harm here. And, it's all, and universal basic income has also become increasingly popular. I think three years ago, probably most people had never even heard of the concept. And today it's being talked about very broadly. Y Combinator is even doing a pilot study um, on it. And there, there are a number of other pilot studies around the world. Why do you think it is the universal basic income proposal is so popular or increasingly popular, at least in, in the tech world? You know, it's funny, man. It's like I have meetings with venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and then we go through it. And then someone said to me just last week, as after I went through all of the data from my book, I've now become something of a uh, an authority <laughs> on the impact of technology on the labor force. And they said, I agree with your problem statement 100%. And I'm not sure if I love the prescription of universal basic income, but I cannot think of anything better. <laughs> and, and so when you ask why has it become so popular, it's that no one really can think of anything that's more optimal. The other 
policy prescription is try and train uh, and educate Americans for the jobs of the future. But if you look at our track record doing that, it's abysmal, where the measured efficacy rates of government sponsored retraining go between 0% shocker and 37%. And this is when we actually try and retrain people, which we do not try to do the vast majority of the time. And you have to bear in mind that only 32% of Americans went to college, 42% have an associate's degree. So you're talking about very large numbers of people that didn't like school the first time. And that might have been 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> so, the, so the reason why we land on universal basic income is because it's the best, most optimal solution for a problem that could threaten the very fabric of society. And in my opinion, is already doing so by the numbers. So let me uh, throw out a, a cynical view of that and, and love your response to it. So you're talking about a, a rising tide of automation and massive job disruption. I think you, you referenced Andy Stern's book where he said the future of work is, is no work at all. Is part of the driving force behind universal basic income the idea that, you know what, people just aren't going to be working? And just like you said, you know, 40% of manufacturing workers who are laid off are on disability, not, not working. And that's just our future. And we might as well provide a, a decent life for those folks and not kid ourselves into thinking they're going back to work. Is that uh, at the core of, of the proposal? Well, so when I was doing research for my book, I found that not doing work is deeply, deeply unhealthy and disastrous for men in particular and for communities. And so I'm very, very pro-work. I mean, I'm an Asian guy. <laughs> sort of a, so the, the goal has to be to try and create meaningful work around the country, but just not have these illusions that it's all going to be based upon who can be the most capital efficient and market efficient. So let me explain what I mean by that. So number one, if you implement a universal basic income of $1,000 a month, it will increase people's purchasing power in a way that would strengthen businesses on main streets across the country, where the Roosevelt Institute found that a universal basic income at this level would create four and a half million new jobs. So that's very, very pro-work. And then the, the goal has to be that we incentivize productive and fulfilling work that right now is not being done. So one of my proposals is to implement a new digital social currency that rewards people for doing things that we know we need, like taking care of the elderly, environmental sustainability, arts and creativity, volunteering in the community, nurturing children even. Because right now, 40% of American children are born to single moms. There's a lot of work that needs to be done around uh, child rearing. And I, I have two young kids myself, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So we implement a new digital social currency in those directions and then create new structures for work. But if we rely upon the marketplace to value human labor the way it is right now, it's going to trend towards very low numbers or zero in a way that's going to drive many, many people into economic distress. And again, that's already happening right now. 57% of Americans can't afford an unexpected $500 bill uh, right now. So we have a majority of the country that are uh, living in a mindset of scarcity day to day. So I, I think the problems you're talking about are massive. And I always thought, gosh, why isn't there some startup solution to it? You know, startups are born to solve problems. This is a massive one. Uh, it's happening all over the country. Why hasn't some company come along and said, 
there's there's something messed up about our labor market. Let me fix it as a traditional private sector entrepreneur. Have you seen any models like that or have people who have tried to do it? And, and is there any hope there? There are people that are trying and there are some really legit efforts. But even if people execute brilliantly, it's going to address 10% of the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I, I'm advising a startup that is teaching people in the Midwest how to code uh, called Kenzie Academy. It's awesome, life-changing results, beautiful stories. But pretending that we're going to turn everyone into coders is ridiculous. <laughs> and eventually we're going to get pretty good at having software do that too, you know? And so like having basic coding skills isn't exactly going to be a panacea. The fundamental answer to your question, Dan, it's like why isn't there a startup addressing this, is that startups exist to fulfill market opportunities and there's very limited marketing opportunity and trying to look out for displaced cashiers or truck drivers or people with very low skill levels. I mean, they're people that the market has low utility for. And so saying, I'm going to make these people super valuable in the marketplace uh, against all odds is something you can do as a one-off in isolation. But doing that for everyone just isn't a business. Let me push back on that a little bit. So I'll start with an anecdote and then I'll move to some data. The anecdote is I have a friend who sort of runs a truck depot. He can't hire anyone to be a truck driver. I mean, he struggles mightily to hire people to be a truck driver. Yeah, there's a massive shortage. And the same is true of the nursing industry or even sort of health workers in general and and, and on and on and on. And I'm I'm now looking at uh, a press release from the Bureau of Labor Statistics from two weeks ago saying there are 6.6 million job openings in the U.S. And I'm looking at in the last month, this is, I guess, March data, even though the press release is, is, is two weeks ago, there were 5.4 million jobs created and 5.3 million jobs destroyed for a net. So they always report the net of 100,000 plus, but it's there every month, 5 million jobs are being created and destroyed. There are 6 million jobs opened feels to me more like a matching problem and that there should be some way <laughs> to do better matching. A lot of these jobs don't require college education. So yes. is, is that naive or do you think there's something about an opportunity to do better matching where we could get this 62% labor participation rate, which is miserable, we could get that back up to set high, high 60s or 70% with better I mean, matching that would be somehow? Incredibly transformative. So you're 100% right that there's a massive matching problem and a friction problem, where one of the statistics that I found the most depressing is that Americans now move across state lines at lower rates than they have in decades. So our labor market is getting less dynamic because people are just hunkering down for a host of reasons. And so one of the things I'm very much for is measures to make the labor market more dynamic and get people to potentially go get that vocational degree, to potentially leave that town and go across state lines to a town that might have more opportunities. And universal basic income is a great way to make that happen because if you have money coming in that's location independent, uh, then you might have more economic flexibility to move. I would pay people to move personally. And there may be opportunity. There's certainly massive opportunities around vocational Right now, only 6% of our high school students are studying any technical skill or vocational skill. And in Germany, that number is 59%. It's like 10x ours. There are millions of middle-skill jobs right now that are being unfilled. So then you have to ask yourself, 
and this is not, in my opinion, an either or. This is a, we should do everything in our power. So I'm pro-universal basic income. I'm pro-paying people to move. I'm pro-startups all over the country trying to reskill and equip people. But there is no one thing that's going to solve this problem. We have to do it all. Why do you think there isn't more focus on this problem? I would personally consider it maybe the number one political, economic, cultural, social problem facing problem, our country. Right? Yes, is, it's driving everything else. Thank you. Yeah. And it's the labor force participation, people doing jobs that are paid, that are good fits for them, that provide some fulfillment, that create a livelihood. The numbers are just are falling off a cliff. And kudos to you for starting a really incredible organization. Of course, you, you were an entrepreneur before then and started and sold a you know, very successful business. So, so kudos to you for, for drawing so much attention to this. What's it going to take for more people to pay attention? And, and, and I guess maybe even more specifically, do people, our audience here at Next Gen Venture Partners, people in the tech world, startup folks, do we have a responsibility given that many of us are at the forefront of driving automation that is, that is partially causing the challenge? You know, what's funny is I say in my book that it's unrealistic to expect innovators to somehow account for downstream economic and social impacts of their work because investors and entrepreneurs have a job to do. <laughs> their job is not to figure out all the downstream impacts. So whose job is it? It's our government's job and our leader's job. And we are just so negative about the capacity of our government leaders to step up and figure it out for good reason, because they've been an utter flop <laughs> at figuring it out. So right now, I agree with you that this is the most important issue that's driving dysfunction in our political realm, socially. And so what I'm trying to do about it is I'm running for president, trying to push all these ideas into the mainstream. And if any technologist or entrepreneur sees what's happening, knows that their work is contributing, which it's not, it's not bad on you. I mean, we all have jobs to do, but that you want to do something about it, please join me in mainstreaming this case. Go to my website, yang2020.com or Google Andrew Yang, make a contribution to the campaign. The federal limit's only $2,700. So many technologists have maxed out and we're starting a club for a thousand tech technologists for Andrew Yang that want to make this case because we are still human we are still parents, we are still citizens, and we are still moral, even as we continue to do our jobs to the best of our ability. Andrew, I have met in my life many people who I think, gosh, you would be great in public service, thoughtful, and care about uh, other people, and you know, some interesting policy ideas, and, and maybe sufficient success in business uh, to have the, the financial wherewithal to do it, the, the network to pull together, to, to run a campaign, and very, you know, very few actually pull the trigger like you have. And I think part of that is it seems to me, as someone who is not running for public office and never plans to, uh, <laughs> a, a kind of a... I, I, yeah, I am. I am. I wouldn't want to drag my wife or my kids through it. It seems miserable. And, you know, it's partially it's the dysfunction, partially it's the constant need to fundraise. I mean, kudos to you for for signing up for it. But 
I guess, you know, do, do you feel that, <laughs> that misery or how, how do you, how do you, I mean, entrepreneurs talk all the time about, you know, how to create a life when you're, you know, kind of in, in the thick of it. And entrepreneurship is hard, as you know, this is all those problems and more. So how do you deal with it? And how do you kind of wrap your head around it? And you know, how do you get your family on board? Well, I agree with just about everything you just said. <laughs> you should know. And I think that entrepreneurs love to solve problems. And when you believe, as I do and you do, it sounds like that there's one elephant in the room that's trashing the place that no one's paying attention to, then you think to yourself, I have to solve that problem. And that's what's driving me. And I will say that I also know many, many people who I think would be great in public service that look at it and say, no, thank you. And <laughs> for very, very intelligent reasons. But running for office when, when you believe so strongly that there's, there's a problem that literally could threaten the fabric of the society that you're going to raise your children in becomes a no-brainer if you believe that at the core of your being as I do. And it, there are other people here who are listening to this right now. If they ever get struck by a problem to that degree, they will also drop everything and do whatever it takes because that's what entrepreneurs are wired to do. Andrew Yang, thanks so much for spending time with me today. It's a pleasure to connect with you, Dan. Hopefully we can meet in person soon. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with Next Gen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com. And now for some important disclaimers. The information contained in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any performance or projections contained herein may be significantly affected by future events. Any opinions, assumptions, assessments, statements, or the like regarding future events or which are forward-looking constitute only subjective views and beliefs, should not be relied on, and are subject to change due to a variety of factors, including fluctuating market conditions and economic factors.